Welcome to our podcast, Conversations About Student Mental Health. I'm Chris Leonard, clinical social worker, working with adolescents for over 25 years. In this podcast, I talk with school administrators, educators, clinicians, and parents to open a dialogue that will help the growing number of students struggling with mental illness. Today, we continue our series on school refusal. When we recorded our last episode in early June, there was great anticipation of fully reopening schools in September. However, as the Delta variant of COVID-19 continues to surge, there is renewed uncertainty about what school will look like this fall. What we do know is that COVID has been deeply disruptive to learning and to mental health. Although many students are hopeful and excited about the prospect of returning to school, many other students and parents are wary about returning to fully in-person learning. A significant number of these students were struggling with school attendance even prior to the pandemic and the issues of safety that it presented. In our last episode, we looked at actionable steps that schools could take this fall to help students successfully readjust to school. I spoke with Dr. Paul Barbato, Director of Special Services for the Dumont, New Jersey Public Schools. Dr. Barbato provided a comprehensive overview, a playbook really, of what schools can do to reduce school refusal and to intervene effectively when it occurs. If you haven't yet listened to that episode, I urge you to do so. It is chock full of ideas that schools can implement right away. In this episode, we will be looking at what parents can do to help their school refusing child get back to school. We will also touch on how schools can partner with parents to form a team to help a student get back on track. My guest today is me. Well, kind of. You see, for this episode, we'll be changing things up, and my guest will actually be interviewing me. Jane Dembski founded School Refusal Hope in 2014 to provide guidance and support for families dealing with their child's school avoidance. Jane is a parent who was once facing the realities and difficulties of her son's school refusal. He experienced school avoidance on and off for about four years. Jane lived through the challenges and complexities that confront parents of kids with school refusal. Her son received the help and treatment he needed, and I am happy to say that he is living a full, normal life with a career, friends, relationships, and independence. Jane vowed to help other families on this journey so she's on a mission to spread awareness about school avoidance, sharing best practices, connecting stakeholders, and promoting early interventions. She recently launched her new website, schoolavoidance.org, to provide valuable information to both schools and families in order to best support our kids. Jane serves on the Pol Public Policy Committee for the New Jersey State Office of the National Alliance on Mental Illness, or NAMI. She is also a NAMI Smarts Advocacy Trainer, where she presents workshops on mental health advocacy. Jane, welcome to the podcast. I know we have a lot to talk about, so do get us started. Yes, thanks so much for having me, Chris. I'm really looking forward to talking with you. Actually, I've been following you for a few years as an expert clinician and school leader, someone who has a lot of experience and advice for families and schools, so I am interested in getting down to our discussion. I just did want to mention one thing. 
Mm -hmm. I might be calling it school avoidance and you're oh, yeah. calling it school refusal. They're both accepted and interchangeable. But obviously, because my website is schoolavoidance.org, I have a geared more to look towards school avoidance. But school refusal is one of the main names that it is called. So, yes. No, I'm glad you clarified yeah, that for our you. listeners. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, Chris, one of the hardest times for a parent who has a child with school avoidance is the morning time. You have that mm -hmm. feeling when you walk down the hallway to your child's bedroom and you kind of know what you may be get, might be getting, but you're not sure. And I have the memory of my son hiding under his covers, holding on for dear life, avoiding me <laughs> and my pleas to get up for school. And, um, I do have this memory of pulling the covers off of him and I feel regretful about that looking back and I was hoping that you can give parents some advice of what they should do in that moment. Great question. So I think, you know, the first thing you want to do is you want to understand why does your child want to stay home and, and can they talk about it? You know, for instance, are they anxious? Um, and if they are anxious, is the anxiety related to something in particular, or is it just what we would call free floating anxiety? It's just anxiety. I'm anxious and I don't know why. So, it, you know, that anxiety wouldn't be attached to any particular experience or situation. Or is it they're, they're avoiding something? Is there a test? Is there a presentation? Is there a bully? What's going, you know, what's going on in their life? The more information you can gather, the better equipped you are to respond. So what not to do? It's not a great time to tell your child that if they don't go to school, they'll never make it to college or they'll end up in some terrible job. Um, what I always recommend to parents is, is to utilize what I call benign curiosity. So, so be curious, but not accusatory. You know, don't be so quick to be alarmed. Although, you know, you probably are going to feel anxious. So you're going to probably want to start with a deep breath, or maybe you're annoyed because you're running out the door to get to work and now you're dealing with your child. But above all, you want to make sure that you try to understand the problem before you try to solve it. Right. And I think, I think that there are things that you can, I mean, does that make sense? Oh, it sure does. I'm also curious, what do you think that in the moment the parent should do? I mean, that is a tough situation. You're kind of not thinking logically and um, there's so much emotion going on. The moment where the child is in the bedroom and the parent is there standing over that child. Mm -hmm. What do you do? I think I, I really I think if they will talk with you that you that that's where you can start to gather information, because the most important thing to find out is why is this happening? Right. It could be I mean, you know, it could be a one time thing. Right. It, you know, um, it could be just a one off. It could right. be something going on today mm -hmm. um, or it could be the beginning of something bigger. Right. I think one of the things, you know, to do is to try and jump ahead of that, of that moment in the bedroom and, and look for indicators that may emerge well before you're in that situation of, right. should I pull the covers off or not? You know, does your child have frequent illness in the morning? Is that illness on a particular day of the week? Is it always on Friday? Is it always on Wednesday? And what would it be about Friday and Wednesday? Might there be a math quiz or a spelling test or something else going on that they're trying to avoid? 
Um, also, tantrums related to particular school-related tasks, homework, assignments, projects, a particular subject. Is there something about school that is starting to set the child off? Right. And then that's just stuff that would be going on at home. Then there, there, there are indicators that you can look for in school. You know, is, is the child making frequent visits to the nurse? Are they finding their way into an administrator's office multiple times a week or out of a particular class? Um, so you, based on what you see in terms of patterns, you want to start to figure out what's the purpose of, right. of this behavior. And the assumption that we make is that all behavior is purposeful. So what's the child trying to accomplish by staying home? This, this helps you figure out, what do I do? If the child is really anxious, okay, so now how do I help with the anxiety? If, if the child is, is avoiding something, how can you help them deal with whatever it is that they're trying to avoid? Okay. And how can a parent go about identifying that? Are there any um, tools, assessments, any way to figure out what is behind the avoidance? Well, best is a conversation. First, you can start out with a conversation. Um, there are typical trends. There are typical things that kids are trying to grapple with. One is they're trying to avoid negative affect. Anxiety, number one. You know, something about going to school is making them anxious. Um, you see a, a lot of times you see school refusal emerge in the transition from elementary school to middle school. It's a big transition. You go from being in one class all day. Everybody's your buddy. You have one teacher, one set of expectations. Now you're changing classes six, eight times a day. Somebody who was your best friend says they don't want to be your friend anymore. I mean, everything changes. And, and sometimes just that, that transition can be very difficult. So maybe the student is trying to avoid something. Maybe it's a social situation. Maybe it's a test. Uh, maybe they are being bullied or picked on or teased. Um, another common uh, factor is that the child is seeking some sort of tangible award, reward. So maybe they just don't want to be away from you. You know, maybe they're having a bout of, of separation anxiety um, and they really just, you know, maybe you've suddenly transitioned now and now you're working from home and wow, here's an opportunity. Mom or dad is home all day. I'm going to hang with them. Do they feel that there's a compelling reason to stay home? Does somebody in the family have an illness? Are they worried about someone? I've talked to students who said, well, I, I'm afraid to go to school. If I go to school and I'm away, mom is very sick. I, I, I think she might die when I'm not home. You know, so something, it could be something like that. In very few cases, this could be a case of truancy. This could just be, I'm not going, I got better plans. I'm gonna be out, you know, if a student is out, you know, finding something to do outside the home, something that's more interesting to them, more, you know, compelling, that may be a sign that there's an oppositional problem. But usually if there's an oppositional problem, you're seeing that oppositional behavior play out in more than one setting, not just related to, will I go to school today? Um, there's a problem with authority on multiple fronts. The other thing that's important to, to um, bear in mind is it's usually not just one thing. It, you know, and, and the research calls this mixed reinforcement. Mm -hmm. So it might be a combination of anxiety and seeking some tangible reward. 
You know, this is soothing to me. I'm going to stay home because I don't, if I stay home, I get to do this and I don't have to be in school and feel that anxiety. Third, an assumption that you want to make is that attending the school is, is the child's job, really. And they need to know from you that your expectation is that they're going to get themselves back to school. And, and finally, as I said before, you know, you want to get help for whatever is getting in the way, whether it's avoidance, whether it's anxiety, whether it's something else, whatever's getting in the way, you want to move toward that help. It sounds like what you were talking about was the four functions of school refusal, mm -hmm. where it's usually either avoidance, um, some negative reinforcements that this child is avoiding, or the positive, as you said, like the tangible rewards. And um, that is part of the school refusal assessment scale. Mm -hmm. that, um, that is a tool that clinicians and schools can use to help parents try to narrow down um, what the child might be dealing with. And as you said, um, these things can be mixed. I mean, it's not always clear cut in mm -hmm. terms of what the cause is or what the function is. And I also wanted to uh, make a point to note that there is a parent edition of the SRAS and also the children's version. So um, that is a tool that clinicians and schools could use. And are you going to have that on your website? Yes, thank you. I all do. right, all right, yes. nice. So parents can go there and they can find that. Yes. And, you know, it may be off-putting, you know, maybe to kind of do that as an interview with the child, but you certainly could go through that checklist and say, and say to yourself, okay, which of these yes. indicators am I seeing? Yeah. Another child might do very well saying, okay, here's me, right. you know, looking, looking at that child mm -hmm. assessment. So it really is dependent right. on, it's, it's individual. Yeah, my right? child would not do it. I had to do it for him and for myself. And um, it pretty much painted a clear picture of what mm -hmm. the psychiatrist had diagnosed him with and uh, our feelings. That so. can be affirming because sometimes yes. we don't want to hear what the psychiatrist has to say. <laughs> Even if we know in our hearts that they're yeah. right, we're like, no, it's not that, no. <laughs> That's funny. Um, another huge dilemma that parents of school avoiding children face is differing advice about taking away their phones or online gaming. So what do you think about this? Well, yeah, I think, I think sometimes people feel like, okay, this is the one place on earth where they're feeling good right now. He gets some relief, he's relaxed, he's happy. Let me not mess with this. The thing is, yes, Absolutely. And kids will say this. Oh, I love playing this game. I feel so good. I, I, you know, and, and kids definitely get tangible rewards from gaming. It's one of the things they like about it. Oh, I, I, I achieve this. I move up a level. Look at that. Boom. Um, one of the things that's very important to bear in mind is, though, one of the most common ways of coping with anxiety is to avoid. And avoidance is comfortable, but it does nothing to help the anxiety. And in fact, it actually reinforces it. The, the longer we try to avoid something, the scarier it becomes. So the other thing about gaming and device use is that allowing that during school hours is really counterproductive. So I'm not saying that you should take away the phone or the game forever. And, and, and actually, that's a mistake that many parents make. You know, a kid breaks curfew or they 
do something, right. you know, in the house or, you know, and they say, that's it, no phone for two <laughs> weeks. That's an awful long time, yeah. especially in today's age where kids are using their phones and devices to keep in touch with friends. Um, so I would say no gaming or device use during school hours. School hours are school hours. And, and, if, and if the child is going to be home for a week or more, you want to get assignments and say during school, it's school. Here's what your option is. Right. You know, we're not after school. If your work is done, once your work is done, show me your work. Then you can have your phone back and you're, you know. That would be an approach I would take. Does that? So, yeah, even like I'm, I'm a mush. So, I mean, when I was going through this with my son, I was definitely saying, "Oh, he he needs it. He needs, he needs um, his phone. It's it's self soothing." But after I experienced all this and reading all the research and speaking to people like you, I realized that that was not the way to go. Yeah. And, and it is hard. When your child is suffering, you want to do nothing to increase their pain. So it's almost counterintuitive to take something away or to say, no, you can't have this right now. But in the long run, you'll be glad you did. Right. Because it, it's, it's just, it'd be one more mountain to climb if, if you're providing too much gratification during the day when they're home. That makes sense. And with that thought in mind, you have many school avoidance clients who have an online gaming addiction? You know, I cannot say that I have, um, maybe a couple. Um, and it's always hard to, you know, it's always hard to say, oh, this is an addiction. I mean, I guess it's, if you can set limits on it, if you can take away the device, if you can take away the game, and there's not, I mean, they're not going to like it. They're going to argue with you. They might call you names. They might, you know, oh my gosh, I can never, you know, trust you ever again or something like that. But if they, if there's real deep desperation, if there really is this, this super strong reaction, you may, you may be dealing with an addiction. Mm -hmm. I think, I think, you know, what does an addiction do? What's the purpose of an addiction? An addiction usually fills a void in our life, right? right? Whether it doesn't matter whether it's drinking, drugs, alcohol, sex, gaming, whatever the addiction is, the addiction serves a function. And the function is to fill this hole that I feel that I have. So the solution is going to be, okay, so where's the hole and, and how do we find another way to fill that? You know, one of the major tenets of therapy is you don't take away a defense or, or a way of coping unless you got something to replace it with. So you want to start to invite the child or the student to, to do other things. Uh, maybe, you know, and, and, and again, do those special things after school. You're not taking them on a shopping spree or taking them out to meet their favorite aunt during the school hours because that's like, oh, I stay home from school, I get to do this. Mm -hmm. It's after school. I think reconnecting with friends, going to a, a team sport or a class, an after-school class, that they, if they can do that, getting them out and getting them reconnected, sometimes that reconnection can be the catalyst that can get them back to, oh, you know what, I miss this. I want to go back to school. Yes, that would be ideal for the child student to have the motivation or not be um, so avoidant, anxious, or depressed that they could actually go and see their friends or um, go to attend events. Uh, that is an ideal situation mm -hmm. that uh, would be great for most parents if they were lucky enough. Not all parents have that situation, but if they do, that's great. Right. I say they're like, you know, 
a step closer to helping their child if they're at that point. As we move further in our questions, all schools differ in their beliefs and attitudes about school avoidance. I've spoken to some educators recently who don't think it's the job, the place of a school administrator, child study team member, teacher to go to a child's home, to go inside and try to talk them into going. Do you have an opinion about how far schools should go to bring those kids into the school building? Yes, I think I think that you know I've I've worked on this from another a number of angles over the over the years. I've been the principal of a of a special ed therapeutic high school. I've been um, you know a therapist in private practice, collaborating with school district people. And I've always recommended that if you can't get a student to leave the house, if you can't get them to reconnect, you know, one of the most important things that you can leverage when you're trying to work with somebody is relationships. And so if they have a relationship with a favorite staff member, it could be a teacher, it could be a school counselor, it could be a paraprofessional, it could be, you know, anybody. And if that person and another person, it's always good to work in a team. If two people can make a home visit, Sometimes that can be a very important first step in re-engaging the child and then maybe getting them to agree to just come into the building for something. Whether it's coming in after school to work on some schoolwork or whether it's coming in at the beginning of the day. Preferably, you know, come in at the beginning of the day. Let's see how long you can make it. Commit to a certain period of time. Can you stay until 1030? Can you stay until lunchtime? Um, seeing about getting them, or even come back in and work in, you can work in my office. We'll have, we'll have your work sent in. You can work in my office and then you can meet with, uh, you know, if there's a school counselor or somebody they can meet with, um, you know, just get them re-engaged. I, I, I really think that that can be an extremely helpful first step. And I, listen, I understand where school people are coming from sometimes because Every, everything that emerges, it's somebody is saying, yeah, the schools should do something about this, you know? And so, and having been a school person, I, I certainly understand as, as a teacher, as an administrator, I understand how that feels, but um, the outreach can be so important and helpful. Yes, yeah, so obviously you believe in that as an approach, you've seen it work mm -hmm. throughout your years. And what I would say to schools is that sometimes I get it. It's really, you know, the teachers, child study team, everyone in the building is so busy. They have so much going on. But to make the investment right there at that point is not only going to save the child, it's also going to save the school in the long run. Because the more entrenched the school avoidance gets, the more difficult it is to get them back into school. Absolutely. And the school has to use more resources mm -hmm. and time and so much. So, you know, we always talk about early interventions equal best outcomes. Mm -hmm. This is a case where I would just ask schools to think about that, that um, going in to the home might feel weird, but it's worked and it's going to save the child and the school in the long run. Yeah. Yeah. I, like parents, you know, I, I think the more schools can pay attention, there's data that you have. Mm -hmm. You know, 
Certain kids are always in the nurse's office. You know kids who are starting to accrue absences. You know, oh my gosh, this kid never goes to gym or they never go to math or they never go. You have that data. So use that data before they start staying home. And then you're, now you're saving yourself some, school, some home visits, right? Yes. You, if you can intervene, the earlier you can intervene before it becomes entrenched, the quicker the turnaround and the better the outcomes. Yes, I see that. And um, I'm glad you actually have all the anecdotal evidence to show that it works. Mm -hmm. And the research, the empirical evidence to show that works as well. Absolutely. Another idea that differs among clinicians is the idea of a written contract between the parent and the student. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's advised to the parent to write a contract with your child and have them say, I agree to go to school in the morning. I agree mm -hmm. to get up. I've never heard that actually helping. So that, that doesn't mean that um, I'm correct. So I want to know what your opinion is about that. Well, a contract in and of itself doesn't mean anything. A contract is only as good as the agreement that it represents. So, you know, if you have a child that is particularly good at just being a yes person and just saying, yep, mom, whatever, you know, yep, sure, I'll sign this. Um, that contract is useless. If you have really worked out some parameters around what your understanding is about going to school and, and how the parent is going to help and how the child is, what the child is going to contribute, what the parent's going to contribute, maybe I, even better, having now engaged with the school and formed a team, I think one of the fundamental best practices with regard to school avoidance or school refusal is a team approach and that should be a multidisciplinary team meaning it should be you know probably a teacher a school counselor school administrator parent student outside therapist if there is one could be a caseworker a cmo worker uh, some other community-based uh, provider the more that you have that 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 child has a sense that there's a team of people and then we're all pulling the rope in the same direction and everybody's here for me that in and of itself is encouraging. So you've established that team. You've made some agreements about who's going to do what by when. And it's not just the child, you know, because a lot of times kids are like, oh, I'm the only one that has to change, right? So if you've laid that groundwork and you want to memorialize that in a contract, a contract can be a great thing. But if you think that you're going to just whip out a piece of paper and that's going to turn everything around, you're absolutely right. No way. It's not going to work. Well, but thank you for um, clearing up when it would work. Right. I see that, especially as you talk about, we always talk about the team approach, how important that is. But for the child to see all these other people care about you or on board and this is what they're going to do. You're not the only one doing things, mm -hmm. I think, is really empowering and helpful. So thanks for clearing that up. Glad to. Another thing that parents often ask. At what point do we need to look for more intensive help? Mm -hmm. And I'm talking about kids that might already be in outpatient therapy or refusing therapy, but it's gotten so bad that they're not leaving their rooms. Mm -hmm. So what is a parent to do at that point? Well, that, that when they're not leaving their rooms, that's really tough, you know, because now it's hard to get them to engage with anybody. You know, even if you have them engaged in a mental health center, partial hospitalization program, something like that, if they're not going, they're not going. That's where you have to try to leverage the relationships and you have to, you know, get somebody to come out. 
you know, it can be, uh, you know, again, a CMO worker, family support organization, uh, perform care. Um, it can be, you know, maybe the representative from that partial program or school representative. Somebody needs to come out and really try and re-engage that student. They might be sitting on a chair outside the student's bedroom door and talking through the door at first, but somebody needs to go out and make that overture. I think it's, it's always better to intervene too early than too late. Um, if you're, if you're, you know, if the student's been home for a week and you're not able to make any progress in getting them up and out, that's when you want to be seeking additional support. And I think a good first call may very well be to the school because the school probably has experienced this before and they may very well have a list of people who they've enlisted before. You know, maybe they've called and, you know, I know in Bergen County, New Jersey, there's Bergen's Promise. So maybe they've worked with Bergen's Promise. Maybe they've worked with another agency and or they've identified a person in the community who really is good at working uh, with kids who are, are avoiding school or, or refusing school. So maybe there's a particular ther private therapist who's good mm -hmm. um, and skilled. So that might be a great place to start. Yes, um, I agree with you. You mentioned Perform Care, which is local to the state of New Jersey, mm -hmm. but I want to just to reiterate that all states have mobile um, children's mental health crisis mm -hmm. so that if someone's in a different state, they can Google state children's mental health crisis, mobile response, something like that. And that will be the agency that can help go into the house and help them. Excellent point. Yeah. Yep. Now, for school avoiding kids who miss days, weeks, sometimes months, some years, but um, of school, when they are working on their reintegration back into school, one of their fears is what to tell the other students about where they have been. So what ideas or possible things do you think kids might say to the other people at school? Well, I think that, um, I think actually there's a greater, a much greater openness now more than ever. We saw it just recently in the Olympics, you know, right. Simone Biles right. said, I'm not, I'm not ready to do this right now. I'm not in a good place. And, and the, the gymnastics committee was saying, oh, she's got a, she's got an injury. And she was like, nope, it's not an injury. This is a, this is a mental health issue that I'm dealing with. Naomi Osaka said, I'm dropping out of this tournament. My, my mental health is at stake. So I think that there is, there is now leadership and, and permission to say, I'm struggling with a mental health issue. And I generally think, I, I, even before there was this reduction in stigma, I think I, I was always advising kids, it's best to be as transparent and as honest as possible. Mm -hmm. You know, if you tell the truth, you only have to keep one story straight. Right. You know, and, and, and I've seen it with, with social media with kids, you know, uh, unfortunately, not everybody is, is, is trustworthy with your information, you know. So you tell one friend, well, I was struggling with a mental health issue. And then you tell nine other kids that, oh, I was at my uncle's ranch in Texas, <laughs> you know. And so that you're, you're telling a story about your uncle's ranch and then somebody's texting somebody else and saying, that's not what happened, you know. So I think... I think kids, you know, one of the, one of the, I don't know, you know, 
what all the factors are that have contributed. I mean, we've had stigma-free programs, right. we've had the pandemic, we've had we've had so many different uh, things. And again, it, things are never singularly determined. They're always multi-determined, right? So we've had all of these factors coming together. And now more than ever, I think kids can just say, you know what, I've been struggling with a mental health issue. I've been struggling with my anxiety. It's been really hard for me to get to school, but I'm working on it and I'm, I'm glad I'm here today. Chris, I can't tell you how excited I am about how the tide has really changed. When I dealt with this with my son, um, maybe seven or eight years ago now, it was so different. There was such a stigma about mental health, me uh, mental illness. Uh, it was really hard to get people to understand, to talk to. It was very isolating. But, you know, we always talk about the silver lining of COVID, and it's so true. So that, you know, the media has been covering mental health so much during COVID. It has become, you know, quote unquote, normalized. And with all the leaders like Simone Biles coming out and being adamant about saying this is a mental health issue, I really feel that I'm getting chills saying it. I know it's so weird, but I think that things have really changed. And as you said, I think a kid can go back into school and say, hey, I had a lot of anxiety, you know, getting back to school and I'm so glad to be here. So I agree with you and I'm just so happy that things have changed. Yeah, no, I 100% I agree. Now... Mental health professionals, psychiatrists, psychologists, therapists, social worker, licensed professional counselor. Um, obviously, when a child is dealing with school avoidance, uh, we want to get help for our kids. But some kids, it's not uncommon, are refusing to get help, go see a mental health provider. So what do you suggest at that point? Get yourself to the provider. The parent. Yes, seriously. Get yourself into that office. Um, now, sometimes that can be all that you need to do. I'm going to. This isn't, this isn't just about you. This is about something going on with us. We're going to work on this together. I'm going to help you figure this out. I'm going to be there every step of the way. Sometimes, the, the, you know, you say you're going to go and the child says, no, nope, not going. Great. So now you go. Go with your partner. Um, if you're a single parent, go by yourself or be, perhaps go with a supportive friend and get in there and, and figure out how you can begin to provide the encouragement or the limit setting that your child needs. There are times when, you know, you are so struggling with something yourself that your child is sensing it. You know, we have these neurons in our brains, mirror neurons, that make us kind of really tune into other people and, and really often imitate what we see. You know, it's so much more important what we do as parents than what we say. Um, and sometimes we are reflecting something and we don't even know. And so we go in and we begin to work on whatever it is that we're struggling with. And sometimes that can be the beginning of the release for our child. And, or some, and maybe that child won't go at first, but then they see, you know, you've merely made a commitment. And now you're inviting them to come in and they say, well, this isn't just about me. So now, you know, now maybe I am willing to go. But that can be... If they won't go, you go. Yeah, that's great advice. I had that experience with my son. He wouldn't go and we did start going, me and my husband. And eventually working with that psychologist, we were able to get my son in the room as well. So that does work. Mm -hmm. And obviously parents need support as well. 
And I hate to ask this next question, but because of the shortage of mental health professionals, sometimes it's hard for a family to find a therapist experienced in evidence-based modes of therapy for school refusal or any therapist at all. So what is your advice to them? Well, uh, one, of the, one of the other silver linings of the pandemic is teletherapy, right? So if you can't find somebody in your neighborhood, look for somebody who provides online work. The other thing is that, you know, you mentioned evidence-based treatments for school refusal, school avoidance. I mean, one of the main evidence-based treatments is kind of like exposure therapy, yeah. because really what you're trying to do is reintroduce the child to school. That's what exposure therapy is. You expose the person to the thing that they are phobic about, right? So the formation of that team, the relationship leveraging that you do, the inviting the student to come and join certain things that may not be the full school day all at once, but just portioning it out, just as you would do with exposure therapy. If somebody's afraid of, of walking across a bridge. You don't say, okay, tomorrow we're going to walk across a bridge. You show them pictures of bridges. You talk about bridges. Maybe you go visit the site of a bridge. You look at the bridge. You wait a couple weeks. You go back. Eventually, you step foot on the bridge, and then maybe you walk halfway across. But you work your way up to it over time, and it's really the same with school avoidance. Right. So that you really, in the absence of any therapist, you can kind of work with the school and, and create that team and begin to move the child in that direction. Yeah, that's a great point. The school does have the capability, they have the school psychologist, and they have other professional, mental health professionals in the building or in the district. And even though we might not be calling it exposure therapy, them trying to reintegrate them getting into school is exposure therapy, as you said. Mm -hmm. So therefore you are getting it. And um, so that's key about working with your school mm -hmm. and getting them involved from the get-go. Not to wait, get them involved as soon as you feel or see a problem. Now, right now, families I talk to who are going through this, some who have been going through this for a really long time, it's become very severe, they um, are so frustrated and heartbroken that they just want to pull their kids out of school and go to homeschooling. What do you say about that? Well, I know, I know a lot of people, there, are, there is a cohort of people who really believe strongly in homeschooling. They feel like I can do a better job at home, my kid has better outcomes, they can focus better, they can dig deep, they can go into all sorts of things that they wouldn't go into. You know, the, it's too gen generic what goes on in school. I'm not a big fan of homeschooling just because I think it's hard to replicate the socialization that happens in school. The learning to form relationships, to collaborate, to deal with people you don't like. I mean, we all have to learn to deal with working with people, living next to people that may not be our favorite people. Um, you know, and, and again, it is, it's about three to four percent of the U.S. population are being homeschooled. Um, that was prior to the pandemic. By March of this year, it was up to eight to nine percent. So a lot of people, why did that happen? A lot of people became frustrated with the lack of engagement and, and, and learning that happened during remote learning for a lot of kids. And, you know, yes, our current paradigm of education was based on training people to work in factories. It was conceived in the 19th century. And yes, in many ways, it hasn't kept up. 
But the point I want to make is that school avoidance should not be the catalyst for homeschooling. If you believe in homeschooling and you think your child is going to learn better at home, great. But don't do it in response to school avoidance. Yes, um, thank you for that. And uh, as you said, parents really have to look at the broad scheme of things and again, not just react to the school avoidance. Chris, I've talked too long and I don't want to go too long on this podcast. So I think I'm going to stop asking you questions now. And I thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking with you. You provided information for school refusal families that goes deeper and further into real world scenarios that families experience. No fluff, no cookie cutter answers. So thank you. Oh, Jane, thank you. I, I, uh, I appreciated the opportunity to speak with a parent who's so knowledgeable about school avoidance, who's able, who's able to share and leverage her own experience, and who's committed herself to really you know, making sure that kids moving forward are going to, and parents are going to have more resources available to them to, to really help their kids get back on track. Uh, I thought the questions you asked were really important questions. I'm sure that there are parents listening right now and school professionals listening now who are grateful uh, that you asked these questions. Um, so listeners, whether you're a school professional, a parent, a student, family or friend of a student, I hope you gained some good insights and actionable steps that you can take to help with school refusal. Um, do look for more helpful content and upcoming events and presentations on our website at www.thrivealliancegroup.com. And Jane, your website again? It's schoolavoidance.org. Excellent. Excellent. Jane, thanks again for being Thank with you, me Chris. today. Conversations about student mental health is brought to you by Thrive Alliance Group, partners in school-based mental wellness.